0: So this is the fourth lesson now on uh, study of the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. Uh, well, broader than that, really, the Sabbath and all of Scripture. I want to read Hebrews 4 again, since I closed with that last time and kind of ironed that out just a little bit more. I'm still not sure if I've got it entirely straight in my mind, but we'll read Hebrews 4 and I'll, I'll just do a, a bit more teaching on that and then we'll keep moving on through our historical survey of the Sabbath. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from His. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall, according to that uh, to the same example of disobedience. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Scripture as always, and and we find. Uh, so many allusions and references to the sabbath your day uh, throughout scripture not just in the old but in the new as well and we ask you that uh, through the time of teaching we might have a better grasp of what it is you're telling us and what you want us to do in jesus name we pray amen last time we looked at uh, we were on point four we looked at sabbath at creation sabbath for the jews uh, Sabbath during the ministry of Jesus and then Sabbath uh, and the church looking at Hebrews 4 and I was confused uh, because I had verse 4 in my notes and I was looking for verse 9 so I was basing that on uh, an article in the 50 year anniversary the OPC does these every so often it's, uh, it's a, a book of essays and in the 50 year anniversary Dr. Gaffin and actually, I'm going to, there's a quote from here that was perfect for the sermon, so I'm going, going to quote this in the sermon as well. But he, this is a great little article on Hebrews 4. If you ever wanted to dive deeper into Hebrews 4, which is not an easy book, this is your, your, uh, your article. A Sabbath rest still awaits the people of God. Uh, and that, that chapter is, is commonly understood by those who say the Sabbath no longer holds, to say just that the Sabbath is realized and uh, for the new covenant, and there is no more weekly Sabbath. Uh, and he interacts with that view, uh, but 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 again, it was it was verse nine that I was looking for last time, where the Sabbath is referenced. Now you don't find the word Sabbath, and that's what threw me off. Uh, except you do in the Greek, and, and that's what Glenn said. And I was wondering if there are any any translations that had that because it actually says, therefore, there therefore remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's that's in the Greek. Um, so. I don't, I don't know why the word Sabbath is not there in the New King James. It apparently isn't there in the King James either. I, I don't know if anyone can look at a different translation and tell me if it's there. I, I think every translation is there remains a rest for the people of God. But, but he actually, in the Greek, says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Uh, so I had that in my mind, and then I looked for it in the text, <laughs> and I couldn't find it. And, and, and that's where I got tripped up. So let me, let me work through it again uh, very quickly, and then we'll keep moving in our historical survey. Uh, I had three points. I had the rest which God's people already enjoy, verse 3, which is spiritual. The rest which remains unrealized for those same people, verses 1 nine uh, and 9 through 11. And then the implication being that the weekly structure of our Sabbaths uh, also remains in place. That's where I had verse 4, but actually I was looking for verse 9. So, uh, let me give you Gaffin's structure from his essay. You have a reference uh, in verse 4 to God's creation rest. So, that's Hebrews verse 4, and it's a reference to Genesis 2.2. 2. So, I was right to think. That verse 4 was important, but uh, I had it in the wrong place. So God's rest at creation is referenced. He's spoken in a certain place of the seventh day and in, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he speaks of God's rest at creation. Verse 4. And then he speaks of uh, Psalm 95 repeatedly. That's quoted... Many times in Hebrews, I, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. What rest? God's rest at creation. But when he speaks of God's people uh, entering the rest that's promised to them, he's pointing to consummation. In other words, heaven. And that's referenced many times in chapters 3 and 4, so I won't point to one verse. So you have Genesis 2, 2, creation rest. Uh, which is my rest. And that also is my rest in Psalm 95. That except God enters his rest at the creation. We, are, we, we hope to enter his rest at consummation, at the end of the age. And Israel didn't. That's the warning to the church today. Be sure that you don't fail to enter his rest But what Gaffin points out is that my rest becomes Sabbath rest in verse 9. And again, it's unfortunate that the translation simply translated my rest, because it's a very deliberate shift in phrasing in the Greek. My rest becomes Sabbath rest, which he says is uh, an implicit allusion or allusion to Exodus 20. In other words, our weekly, our weekly Sabbaths. My rest becomes Sabbath rest. The inference uh, then, well, uh, that ties Psalm 95 and Genesis 2-2 to uh, the command for weekly Sabbaths. Again, it does so by implication not explicitly the broader point is that we are hoping to enter God's consummate rest that he entered at creation but we can call that Sabbath rest uh, for the same reason that uh, the Sabbath that was instituted in the Old Covenant as a weekly pattern uh, was was meant to mirror and anticipate God's uh, God's rest that we hope to enter so there is an a connection between the weekly Sabbath and the eternal Sabbath Uh, that, again, is brought out by implication by calling my rest Sabbath rest in verse 9. Another way that you could look at it, and again, we're arguing on the level of inference, admittedly, the broader point is is points 1 and 2, but if the church has not entered God's rest yet, which is the point, then it doesn't make sense to say that the weekly foretaste has gone away either. The only way you can argue that is, as people do argue, that we have already entered his rest. So Gaffin is arguing in terms of the structure of Hebrews. If Hebrews is saying that the rest that we hope to enter is unrealized, then you can't say that the weekly Sabbaths go away. The way that they argue that is by saying, we have entered his rest, and therefore the weekly Sabbaths go go away. So it's it's a look at the broader argument uh, that is being made in Hebrews. Uh, But either way you argue it, Hebrews chapter 4 is not explicitly about weekly Sabbaths, but your understanding of that passage will inform your view of whether the weekly Sabbath is still in place. I, I hope that point is coming through. Uh, let me just read a couple quotes from Gaffin. He says, the quote of uh, God's Sabbath in, in chapter 2 of Genesis, reference in verse 4, has the effect, along with verse 9, of bringing the Sabbath into view. He says, the way in which Psalm 95 and... Genesis 2, that's points 1 and 2, are brought together here, indicates the scope of the promised rest in the writer's view. The fulfillment of the church's hope represents nothing less than the fulfillment of the original purpose of God in creation, or more accurately, the realization of His purposes of redemption is the means to the end of realizing His purposes of creation. Again, he's just saying that the goal set before the church is to enter God's rest, and that's been the goal since the beginning. But then he says... In verse 9, where we expect another occurrence of my rest, the writer instead has Sabbath rest, sabbatismos. This substitution is not only striking, it appears quite deliberate. He says the reference then is not so much Sabbath day itself as to its use or celebration, Sabbath keeping or Sabbath resting. And then he makes two points. My rest, in its local character, is a place of Sabbath rest. I think I've made that point over and over again. In explicit fashion, reinforced by the use of Genesis 2-2 and 2 verse 4, verse 9 ties God's rest in its sweeping eschatological scope to the institution of the Sabbath and its observance. In other words, God connects His Sabbath with our weekly Sabbaths. Number two, there is an interconnection between ongoing Sabbath observance and eschatological Sabbath rest. When we speak of uh, God's rest as Sabbath rest, we are speaking both of uh, the eternal Sabbath we hope to enter, but also of our weekly Sabbaths. So I think that point was somewhat labored. I'm going to just leave it there. Uh, I, want, I want to press on uh, in my historical survey at this point to uh, the Sabbath and the early church as our fifth point. So now we're beyond the New Testament witness. Well, actually we're not. uh, Because there is, um, we're going to look at the Apostles, but also beyond the Apostles as well. I want to make an observation here from Hughes Olfinold In his book, uh, Worship Reformed According to Scripture, several points in fact. Uh, his little chapter on the Lord's Day is the best I've ever read. So, I mean, this, is, this would be a great resource for anyone to have in this church. And you could just, like I said, use it as a, re- a resource or a reference. If you read his chapter on the Lord's Day, you get this wonderful historical survey. And we do have two copies of this, by the way, in the library. It's red, though. It's an older copy. Uh, he says, concern for the observance of the Lord's day has always been a strong feature of Reformed worship. That's the first line. So I know that that still seems weird and odd to the modern person who wasn't brought up in the OPC, uh, almost cult-like. <laughs> but, but actually, this is something that has been uh, historically one of the strongest features of Reformed worship. He makes a note, uh, going back to the the giving of the fourth commandment the word remember he does a bit of exegesis here he says now i i i exegeted the word remember to mean we are we are remembering literally uh the institution at creation we're remembering because we tend to forget it we tend to forget to keep the sabbath we tend to forget oh it's saturday night again uh and and i filled my schedule up too full (laughs) once again we're forgetful about it uh but he says it has much more the meaning of hold a service of memorial on the Sabbath. I think that's very helpful. And he notes that in Deuteronomy, it's not remember, but it's observe the Sabbath day. I wonder if that's true in my Bible, although I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to look. To remember the Sabbath day, he says, means to observe the day, to celebrate the religious rites appropriate today. Well, I'm just offering that by way of introduction to this point. Uh, my real interest is... To notice, uh, and, and and any study on the Sabbath will make this point, uh, the Glenn Neck book makes this point, and by the way, I still have six copies, which I will happily give away to anyone who promises to read it, but it'll be yours in that case, uh, but I only have six, so I won't give it away indiscriminately, but what you find in the early church, beginning with the apostles, and so this post-resurrection, it's not post, um, post-Pentecost, it's actually pre-Pentecost, but post-resurrection, what you find is that, this, that Sunday became the church's holy day. Now, whether you call that a Sabbath is open to debate. Uh, our brothers at Grace do not call it a Sabbath, but they observe it like a holy day. I, I had lunch with the pastors there a few weeks ago, and we were having a friendly discussion on the Sabbath. Um, and, and, uh, and But I asked them, I said, but you guys still revere the Lord's day. Uh, They said, absolutely. In fact, if someone's reliably missing church because of other activities, we'll call them to account. And so it really does become, even for those who don't call it the Christian Sabbath, it becomes the church's high holy day, Sunday, the day Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but you don't find any other holy day in the early church. That's That's a matter of historical fact. So you don't find them observing Christmas. You don't find them observing Easter. You just don't. And like the reformers, I I would wish to find the pattern of New Testament worship among the apostles. But you do find them observing Sunday as I would say as their as their Sabbath. What we find in the New Testament is something remarkable. If you read Robert Murray McShane, I love the Lord's Day. If you read Glenn Neck, do you find him making the same point? What you find, and this i mean, this struck me very strongly the first time I read this, what you find is that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, remarkable things were happening. So Jesus was raised from the dead the first day. By that, he blessed it and he hallowed it. Who could argue with that? That's the language, by the way, of Genesis 2-3 concerning what God did on the seventh day. Well, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he blessed and hallowed The uh, the eighth day or the first day, depending on how you want to put that. Some people say the eighth day because, well, there's a lot to be said about the eighth day. In fact, it comes out with the leper. I'm not going to say anything about it tonight, but the eighth day comes out a lot in Scripture as well. So he not only, I'm reading McShane, he not only sets it apart as a sacred day, but he makes it a day of blessing. Jesus rose from the dead. And what did he do after he rose from the dead? He appeared to his disciples. And what you had there was the first New Testament worship service. He appeared to them. He taught them. They worshiped. And then what do we read in John after that first worship service? Does anyone remember? Eight days later, he appeared to them again. Now, that's the Jewish way of saying next Sunday. Next Sunday, he appeared to them again, and they worshiped. Again, I'm reading McShane. Again, after eight days, that is the next Lord's Day, Jesus came and stood in the midst and revealed himself with unspeakable grace to unbelieving Thomas. Number three, it was on the Lord's Day also that the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Did you ever realize that? Another Sunday. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Did he rise? His attention was on Sunday. That's a good question. It's a question of math because it's 40 days later. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't think so, if I'm being entirely honest, was his ascension on Sunday. Just as a question of simple math, I don't think it works out. It would if you count eight days. Well, I know, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the math in my mind. I don't have the answer to that, and McShane is no help to me here. <laughs> uh, but we know that uh, the first two worship services, we know that Pentecost was on Sunday. That beginning of all spiritual blessing, that first revival of the Christian church was on the Lord's Day. It was on that same day, number four, that beloved John, he says, received that revelation that he gives to the church. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, Just to use, uh, I'm I'm going beyond McShane here, but you find in Acts chapter 16, in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that the Christians were gathering together on the first day. The Sabbath has been a day in all ages, he says, of double blessing. Sinners are converted most frequently on the Lord's Day. That Jesus comes in and shows himself through the lattice of the ordinances oftenest on his own day. Saints like John are filled with the Spirit on the Lord's Day and enjoy their calmest, deepest views of the eternal world. The question which we have, it's the argument that old makes, it's the argument that Necht makes, it's the common argument, is by what authority... Did these Jewish men, the apostles, take the Christian church and say, Sunday's become the holy day, no longer Saturday? On whose authority did they do that? Well, the argument that Old makes, the argument that Neck makes, the argument that I make, is that they did so on the authority of Jesus Christ himself, that he instituted the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath when he ministered to them on those first Sundays. Uh, Do we have a record, an explicit record of that in the New Testament? No, we do not. We do not. Uh, And so it is, once again, an argument from silence, as so often these arguments go. I like how old puts it. The question is, did Jesus or did someone else change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday and make it the first day of the week and make the first day of the week the Christian Sabbath, the New Testament gives us no clear statement as to what happened or how it happened. All we know is that already in New Testament times, Christians celebrated worship on the first day of the week and that they called it the Lord's Day. And he gives many scriptural references. Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, Revelation 1. It is hard to imagine how any Jew would tamper with something so sacred as the Sabbath. Certainly the the disciples would never have done it on their own. One can only imagine Jesus himself doing it. That's it. I love that line. One can only imagine Jesus himself doing it. Again, as he met with his disciples Sunday after Sunday, and he set that as the pattern for them to observe. Was there anything else I wanted to say about that point? Oh, well, I said that Necht and McShane, but if you keep reading that page, you'll find how Old making the same point. He goes through a list. All the great things that happened in the early church on Sunday, and I've already given you that list so that's that's the the witness of the early church. Uh, the witness of the early church was they worshipped on Sunday, and if you read the early church fathers, uh, I don't have it in my notes. Ah, where is it in the neck? Let me see if I can find it real quick. <laughs> no. I don't remember which chapter it's in, but if you if you read the early church fathers, you will find, uh, and not only them but but their opponents who wrote about them, uh, that for them keeping uh, keeping Sunday as the Sabbath was a matter of of, uh, of their Christianity. It was it was a matter uh, that was they were inflexible about. Uh, I, only, I only reference uh, the, the church devising holy days because it does have some reference uh, and historical significance to the keeping of the Sabbath. You have the emergence of Christmas and Easter and other holy days in the, in the Christian calendar. It is called later in the scene, the early Middle Ages. Why is that significant? Can anyone tell me? It's not just that I'm uh, I'm a Scrooge and I love to dunk on Christmas and Easter and, and make everyone miserable and sad. That's not it at all. So tell me why the Puritans went back to the purity of the early church and said, you know, this might not be what you want for the church. Can anyone tell me, Matt? God didn't it. Well, that's a good answer. God didn't command it. But specifically with reference to the Sabbath, John? To elevate the others is to... Downgrade the Sabbath. That's correct. Precisely to the extent, and I think if you looked at America today, you would see this. We live in a land that uh, reveres Christmas, but does not revere uh, the Sabbath. Uh, in fact, you will be looked on with bulged eyes if you say, maybe we shouldn't observe Christmas. And those same bulged eyes will look at you if you say, maybe we should keep the Sabbath. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, old, three times in that chapter makes the historical observation. Remember, he's a historian. That to the extent that the church elevated the holy days, the Sabbath fell out of use. And that seems to always be the case. And so in the Middle Ages, with the emergence of the holy days, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, ceased to be uh, so central. The multiplication of feast uh, and saints' days tended to obscure the celebration of the Lord's Day, he says. That's the first time he says it. He says the emphasis... On the liturgical calendar did much to weaken the devotional significance of the Lord's Day, number three. Again, these are historical statements. And number three, unfortunately, this new emphasis on liturgical feasts and fasts seem to go hand in hand with the neglect of the Lord's Day. Now, those number two and three actually deal with America and its preoccupation with the feast days of the Middle Ages, which, again, when I get to it, is baffling, quite frankly, as an accident of, or as a fact of history. Uh, but, but inevitably, whether in the Middle Ages or in America, post Second Great Awakening, when these things become elevated, when you elevate what God never commanded and what the church never observed in its earliest uh, days, suddenly the things that were prominent fall out of use. Uh, and that's not just accidental. That is uh, actually uh, precisely how uh, how worship works. When you elevate what God did not command, not incidentally, but very much uh, very much related to that. What God did command falls out of use. So, with, with the emergence of that, the Sabbath begins to be weakened in the Middle Ages. So, I, I'm including the Middle Ages as kind of the pivot from the early church. That's all I'll say about it. But now, number six. So, Sabbath in the early church, number five. Sabbath during the period of the Reformation, number six. So let's just say as a broad sweeping statement, that's totally unfair, but the Sabbath fell out of use during the Middle Ages. There's some truth to that. Uh, but you look at the reformers and what they're doing is they are seeking uh, to, to clear away the darkness and to restore the light. And, and where did they find the light? They found it in two places. Can anyone tell me what those two places were? Uh, Well, that was their activity of bringing light. But where did they go to find the light themselves? They went to the Bible. Okay. And they went to the early church fathers. And they looked again to that early church witness. If you ever read Calvin, you'll find him quoting Augustine all the time. And the church fathers. They were not very impressed with the medieval fathers, however. If ever they quoted them, it was to reject them. Uh, but they, they love these early church fathers, and they were seeking to restore the purity of Christian doctrine, but also Christian worship. We often miss that point. We make the Reformation all about justification by faith. We forget that these men were reforming Christian worship. This is, not, this is another hole in my, in, my, uh, in my knowledge. I would simply note without going to any great detail about the Reformers' teaching on the Sabbath, I would simply note that the question of the Sabbath and the church calendar was revisited in the time of the Reformation. And generally speaking, what the Reformers did is what we do today, okay? And so if, if someone defends the American practice, they'll say, well, this is what the Reformers did. They, they got rid of the majority of the feast days, and they called them Holy Days, but they held on to Christmas and Easter, and you should read one of Calvin's Christmas sermons uh, to get a sense of how he felt about it. Uh, it was, it's pretty humorous, actually, actually, to see him scolding the church for its observance of Christmas as he was forced to preach this Christmas sermon. So uh, I don't think Calvin was too happy about it, but we think of him in Geneva as though he was some pope. He wasn't. He was under authority, and there were things he had to do uh, under the leaders of Geneva. Uh, but, but at any rate, that's pretty much where the Reformers landed, more or less. They, they held on to Christmas and Easter. They got rid of all all the other holy days. The significance of this period, however, is that it laid the groundwork for what came next. Again, they're re, re, reevaluating the Christian calendar, the Sabbath, the practice of the early church, the emphasis of Scripture, and you come into the next period, number seven, and this, okay, yes. Did Luther keep the holy days in well, I'm saying that Luther and Calvin both did. Most of them did. They kept a, a very diminished form. Uh, so. so most all of them? A lot of them. Uh, well, I know that Luther rejected many of them. So uh, let's say, uh, to be fair, that uh, Luther held on to more than Calvin did. I think that's a fair statement. I know that there was still reform, either in, even in the Lutheran church. Um so the only thing I know is that the Lutherans still have they go by the church calendar. Yeah, I, I I want to say it's still modified compared to the Roman Catholic. Well yes. That's what my point is. So it was revisited, it was modified, it was reduced in its scope, and then further reduced among the reformed. Um so I'm speaking very broadly among the reformers, uh and I'm I'm just following old here in what he says. I'll I'll read to you what he says. Uh, if I can find it. He says, speaking of uh, the reformers in the early 1530s, there was considerable discussion in, in the reformed church of Strasbourg. But see, he's looking specifically at the reformed churches. So in fairness, uh, your point is well taken in the reformed churches. uh a considerable question as to whether other feast days should be observed in addition to the Lord's Day. The Church of Strasbourg, I'm I'm skipping down, observed Easter. Remember, uh, Calvin spent time in Strasbourg in between his two stays in in Geneva. Uh, That's where Busser was. It it observed Easter and Pentecost from the beginning of the uh, the Reformation. Interesting. No word about Christmas there. About the celebration of Christmas, there was considerable reservation. Well, there's the line. Because the Reformers knew from patristic sources it had not been observed until the 4th century. Okay, I, let me keep reading. Within a few years, the Reformed Church calendar was fairly well established. The heart of it was the weekly observance of the resurrection of the Lord's Day. So, Lord's Day was put center. Instead of liturgical seasons being observed, the five evangelical feast days were observed. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Uh, and I could keep going. But, for instance, you don't have a season of Lent. Even uh, even in, even in uh, the Lutheran Church, but if you go into Lutheran Church today or an Anglican yes that it 's a much more robust system. Uh, the debate then becomes historically, so we are looking more narrowly at the at the, uh, the Reformed churches and and I was corrected by my reading there. It was actually more than just the two there were actually five feast days that 's still emphasized by the way, if you are in a Dutch tradition, the URC and and I have friendly debates with Sam Perez over that. Um, so uh, I won't tell you how the joke goes. I almost did, but uh, I, let's just say I accuse him of breaking God's law every time he does. Uh, but but anyways, um, but he says you don't observe the feast days. I say no, I follow the Bible. But at any rate, in fairness to that view, that was the view of the reformers. But uh, but but Presbyterians today are are not so much heirs of the reformers, but they are heirs of the Puritans. So. This is the seventh stage, and that's why, you know, we don't read as much Luther and Calvin, in fairness. When we're reading Banner of Truth, which I read all the time, I just devour it, (laughs) I'm really reading the Puritans and their heirs. So that takes us into another century, and what the Puritans did is they continued to examine this question and to evaluate not only the place and the centrality of the Lord's Day, but what about these five feast days? And again, I'm corrected by old. I was just thinking in terms of the two. One of the things that you notice... So in the, in the, in the age of the Puritans, I'm including their sons. Okay, that takes us uh, beyond the Puritan age, even into colonial America. So we're looking at all the way up to the time of the First Great Awakening. What we find in that period of time is not only the absence of, of Holy Days... But uh, an elevated stress uh, on the Lord's Day. The centrality of the Lord's Day in in the observance of a robust Christian uh, system or program of living was enormous. If you read the Puritan writings, uh, you will find a consistent emphasis on the Sabbath. Although I continue to hold up, uh, McShane was not a Puritan. He was a son of the Puritans. But they, I mean, this is the, the highlight. This is the uh, this is as good as it gets. I love the Lord's Day by Rob, Robert Murray McShane. But you won't find anything there that seems out of place if you're schooled in the Puritans. Uh, so they're taking the the teaching of the reformers and their interest not only in something else. I should say about the reformers was that they in in, in going back to Scripture. They were interested in answering this question, and that was the place of the law in the life of the believer. Not the traditions of the church, but the law. To what extent the law applies today. Obviously, we're looking at one of those commandments, the fourth commandment. And if you read Calvin, you will find him consistently emphasizing what is called the third use of the law. That the believer who's been redeemed by grace is to keep the law. And in his observance of the law, he is to keep the Sabbath. Well, the, the Puritans just took this to another level. In fact, I don't think it is a stretch to say that as a hallmark of their piety and their view of the Christian life, that the true measure of godliness and Christ-likeness was Sabbath observance. I, I do not think that is a stretch. And closely connected to this Uh, Their view of the Christian life and the place of the law in it was their convictions about the centrality of of public worship to the Christian life. Now, in this, they were in entire agreement with the reformers. There was no need for development. The reformers also placed this again at the center of the Christian life. The the, the, the center, the high point, you know, the modern view is you go to church so that they can equip the saints so you can do the work of the ministry. That is not the proper view of that verse. I can explain that later and I've explained it before. Uh, but that's that's not the Reformer's view. That's not the Puritan's view. But that the real work of the Christian life, the stuff of the Christian life, the work of the ministry, occurred in the context of worship. Now that was a threefold. There were three tiers. There was public worship. There was family worship and private worship. We would call those uh, personal devotions and family devotions or family worship. We still call it family worship. I don't think we still call it private worship. But worship was the center of the Christian life. And it was out of that concern that the Lord's Day became absolutely central. If worship was the center of the Christian life, so too must the day of Christian worship and the life of the believer must be organized around this commitment. If you remember what we saw from Terry Johnson uh, and, and the ancient paths, the old ways of living, It wasn't just what you did on Sunday, but that had a way of determining what you did the other six days. Is there anything more important than gathering together as Christian people? They would say that the fate of the nation was tied to this. That's what you get in McShane. They would also say if you go to their sons in in the colonial uh, America, leading up to and and into the first great awakening, this becomes a key component of revival. That in the age of revival, what what you noticed, among other things, was the close, careful observance of the Lord's Day and and the desire to keep it. People loved the Lord's Day. If if you look in uh, the great document of the Puritan Age, the Westminster Confession of Faith, you will find this point. Chapter 21 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. And it tells us all about worship in sections 1 through 6. But then in, in sections 7 and 8 it tells us about the Sabbath. As it is a law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in His word by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding men, uh, all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. This Sabbath is kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. What I would note there, and I think I need to close at this point. I can't see the time, but are we past 1040? Yes. Okay, I would note there two things. One is their high view of the, of the Lord's Day, a very uh, exalted form of Christian piety to be observed on the Lord's Day observing the whole day taken up the whole time in exercises of public and private worship uh, not engaging in the works of of uh, common employments or even recreations but but the second point is that they connected this and our, our directory of public worship does as well they connected this to the broader subject of worship which again is at the center of the of the christian life of of worship and the sabbath day that's that's what that chapter is. So seeing those two things in connection with one another and understanding how central worship was to these men clarifies for us uh, the importance of the Sabbath. Now, next time, I'm eager to read to you from the Directory of Public Worship that was originally connected to the Confession of Faith and 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 to see even more clearly how these uh, commitments were codified. Uh, and uh, we've already looked at our own directory of public worship but we'll we'll just i thought we would finish the historical survey today but but not quite after this we'll look at the practice of keeping sabbath uh, for two or three classes and then we'll be done with our little mini study but uh let's let's close with a word of prayer our father in heaven we are grateful for uh your sabbaths and we ask you that they would be to us a day of blessing a day of delight a day of double blessing as mcshane calls it a day in which men are not only saved but in which the saints are doubly blessed Holy Spirit, be pleased to pour out your fullness on us this day of all days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.